All right, welcome to our class on St. John Chrysostom's On Marriage and Family Life, a collection of his homilies on texts related to marriage and family life. Uh, a couple of prefatory comments before we simply jump into the introduction to the text and then the text. In the first place, this study really isn't a study on marriage as such. We're not laying the biblical groundwork for marriage. I'm, this isn't Pastor Rody's marital or premarital counseling. We're not really taking a holistic approach. We're not really starting at ground zero with marriage and building our way up as, as I would do if I were teaching the class. Uh, so again, just to set our expectations, we're reading John Chrysostom, a fourth century church father, um, on, uh, on what he has to say and preach about marriage and family life. And so we'll be just studying his comments and thinking about them more broadly. Also, by way of preface, I would say that uh, we're guaranteed to hit some, some controversial and sensitive topics in this class as they arise from, from the scriptures and from Chrysostom himself. And that's okay. I hope that it's challenging. I hope that we uh, don't come out of this unscathed. I hope we have opportunity to uh, consider what we might not have considered. Even, even if that means, what is it now? In the movie The Matrix, uh, there's, and this has become this whole meme thing on the internet, but I haven't really paid as much attention as I should. But in the movie The Matrix, uh, if you remember, the main character is offered by the guiding character. Um, the main character's name is Neo. The guiding character's name is Morpheus. Morpheus offers him a red pill or a blue pill. And the blue pill is you, you, you go back into, into your stupor and you don't know the truth and you live comfortably and happy but you die a, a slave. Or you take the red pill and you'll know the truth but the truth is exceedingly painful and mind-blowing and really changes the way you look at yourself. And so do you take the red pill or the blue pill? Obviously, there was a, a movie, in fact, three of them, so he takes the red pill. <laughs> he took the blue, that'd be the end right there. Uh, in, many, in many respects, what Chrysostom's going to do for us, if, if we'll let him, is he's going to give us a red pill. And uh, so too will I in some of my commentary. And it, it may be too much, and you may disagree with me. Wouldn't be the first time, probably. So <laughs> I don't take offense. I hope you won't take offense. Uh, but in our society... Um, there is a satanic attack on the family, a satanic attack on marriage. I would even argue a, a satanic attack on the male, specifically as husband and father, that is above and beyond all else. Because as, if you can you know, strike the shepherd, you'll scatter the sheep. Destroy the father, you'll destroy the family. Okay, So uh, that's, that's some of where I'm coming from. Um, again, there may be some uncomfortable truths, some uncomfortable things we discuss. I may not be correct on everything. And, and I acknowledge my, my biases too, because as, as a pastor uh, in the 21st century, in America, where the divorce rate is over 50%, and in Orange County, where the divorce rate is over 70%, uh, my biases are that I see a lot of the worst parts Okay, so, so you, may, you may have this beautiful, wonderful experience of marriage, and what I'm saying might sound like, well, what is his problem? It's not anything like that. Fair enough, fair enough. Your mileage may vary. You may have a wonderful and blessed uh, marriage as it is, um, and, and thanks be to God for that, taking nothing away from that. In fact, we need to learn how it is you did, what graces God poured out upon you that that, that has been accomplished. I, as a pastor, deal with a lot of broken and conflicted and challenging marriages. And so that's where I'm coming from with many of my anecdotes and experiences that, that I will probably inevitably share as we go through the text. So uh, with those sort of preparatory comments out of the way, uh, without further ado, let us take a look, and it's only going to be a brief look, at the introduction. Uh, again, for those of you for those of you tracking, I'll simply hold this up. You can you can pause it if you need and see if you can zoom in. You know you you know you're a product of the 21st century, um, or at least you've been brainwashed by the 21st century, as have I. When have any of you actually found yourself doing this? 
It's embarrassing. You're looking at print materials and you do one of these. <laughs> do, do <you> know? <laughs> Trying to zoom in. <laughs> oh my, oh, so embarrassing. I caught myself doing that. Anyway, um, pause the video, take a look. This is the text we're studying. Uh, St. John Chrysostom on Marriage and Family Life, St. Vladimir's Press. Um, now, the introduction. I don't want to spend too much time here on the introduction. Uh, if, if you've read it, and you might love it. I don't love it. I don't love the introduction. Um, I don't love the introduction because uh, it, it is definitely, definitely um, influ influenced heavily by 20th century feminism. Uh, by some by some sloppy scholarship and inaccurate scholarship, and then and then also some of the eccentricities of Eastern Orthodoxy, you get all of that in here. So <laughs> so read at your own risk. And um, that's not why we're studying this book for the introduction. We're studying this book for the texts uh, written and preached by uh, Saint Chrysostom. Okay. So. On page, on page 7, here the introduction does a, does a good job of giving us the gist. As I mentioned, uh, Chrysostom's a 4th century church father, and his dates, according to the internet, are roughly 347 to 407. So that would give him, if my math is correct, what, about 60 years of life? Mm -hmm. So 60 years and uh, most of those in the 4th century. Of course, the Edict of Milan takes place in 313. So Chrysostom is entering into uh, the world where Christianity has been newly legalized and has gained exponentially in popularity and acceptance. He's coming after the time of, when we think of the early church persecutions, uh, they by and large are past at this point. <clears throat> Now, simply starting on page 7, and we'll read just a little ways through the introduction together. The 4th century of the Christian era presented great challenges and opportunities for the Christian church. The emperor Constantine, in first legalizing Christianity and then establishing it as the state religion, marked a new stage in the progress of the church from a small Jewish sect to the predominant faith of the Roman Empire. The church was forced by its confrontation with pagan society to deal with serious issues both theological and pastoral. The encounter with Greeks trained in philosophical thought required the church to express its teaching in philosophical terms. Theological matters dominated the agenda of the ecumenical councils and the treatises of the great fathers. St. Athanasius of Alexandria, St. Basil of Caesarea, St. Gregory of Nazianzus, St. Gregory of Nyssa, which, by the way, is a nice little hall of fame for some of the early Eastern fathers. All of these are, are big names in early church theology. The practical problems arising for Christian life in a pagan society were the primary concern of St. John Chrysostom. Ah, so you can see the shift, and, and here uh, uh, Catherine Roth is the author of the introduction. <clears throat> she makes a nice distinction for us that while so much of the world and so much of what Christ Christianity was doing uh, was what we would call philosophical or academic, <clears throat> intellectually inclined, uh, Chrysostom is especially interested in the practical, especially interested in preaching, especially interested in the lives of the people. Um, Chrysostom, in fact, that name uh, means golden mouth or golden tongue, and that was a, a nickname given to him because of his eloquence and because of he, he is large, widely and largely thought to be uh, pretty much the greatest, the greatest preacher, aside from uh, Jesus, <laughs> to have lived. All right. Now, what, what is meant by these, uh, these practical 
problems. Roth continues, among the recurrent themes of his preaching were the proper use of wealth, the correct attitude to popular entertainments, and the requirements of family life. Wow. Wow. What could be more pertinent for us in decadent, late-stage Western capitalism? Hearing it straight from uh, Chrysostom in regard to wealth, popular entertainment, and family life. So we're looking at family life here. And you can imagine he's going to be going against the grain, against the current in the 4th century with paganism surrounding them, infiltrating their society. And then we're going to resonate with that greatly as we consider our place here in the late 20th, early 21st century. St. John was raised at Antioch by his widowed mother, Anthusa. After an education in the pagan classics, he turned to the study of the Bible and then to monastic life. After six years as a monk living in the hills, he was forced by ill health to return to the city. He served as reader, deacon, and priest during 20 years at Antioch. In 398, he was taken to Constantinople and consecrated bishop. So what do you see at this early stage? As an aside, you see a quite, you see a quite organized, well-structured, and even hierarchical ecclesiastical polity or, or church order and, and governance. So in 398, he becomes bishop. Roth continues, his episcopate in the imperial capital was troubled by controversies and intrigues which led to his exile in 404 and death in 407. So ultimately exiled <clears throat> and dies at 60 years old. St. John's earliest writings emphasize the value of celibate life. And I've just written here in the margins 1 Corinthians 7, which we'll take a look at because this is one of the places uh, where Paul especially sets forth the merits of, of celibate life. Roth continues, he wrote to advise his friend Theodore, later Bishop of Mopsuestia, not to abandon the monastic life. Other works of St. John combat the attackers of monasticism and defend the preference for virginity. And here in my margins, a text we'll probably have opportunity to look at. I simply wrote Matthew 19 because here Jesus talks about the, the gift of uh, celibacy, the gift of virginity, um, supernatural gift given to some. And so this was rightly praised in, in the early church, and it is probably something we've lar largely lost track of today. Um, <laughs> it'd be good to recover, I just don't know. I just don't know what can be recovered. Roth continues, his, Chrysostom's, early life as the son of a widow and as a young monk perhaps failed to give him the opportunity of fully appreciating the potential for grace in married life. Later, his experience as a pastor at Antioch and at Constantinople corrected this imbalance in his understanding, and later he became the great apologist for Christian marriage. Among his most faithful friends and helpers was the widow and deaconess Olympias, who may have taught him through her example and her conversion, which was continued in their letters, what the quality of a Christian woman should be. Among the problems for the church in a still largely pagan society was the development of a Christian doctrine of marriage and a Christian form of of wedding. The doctrine of marriage was, of course, based on the Jewish law. Christ had modified this by forbidden, forbidding divorce, except in the most extreme case. I don't know how much of a true modification that is, but let's not just quibble over the words. 
the Pauline epistles to the, Corinth, to the Corinthians and Ephesians became the basis for the Christian teaching on marriage and virginity. The celibate life was valued as it had not been in mainstream Judaism in view of the imminent approach of the last times. Even when the end of time failed to arrive, again, I'm going to quibble with the way she puts this, but be that as it may, the ascetic life in the form of monasticism was recognized as a sign of God's kingdom. At the same time, marriage was accepted as good. God had created humanity as male and female with the intent that they should join together even before the fall, though some of the church fathers have taught that sexual procreation was instituted after the fall. Christ blessed the wedding at Cana with his presence and performed a miracle which assisted the joyous celebration of the event. St. Paul instructs married people to remain married. St. Peter himself was married. And some of Paul's missionary associates seem to have been married couples. For example, Priscilla and Achilla, Andronicus and Junia, Philologus and Julia. Paul elsewhere mentions wives traveling with missionaries. Some writers, especially those in the tradition of St. Augustine of Hippo, have spread the opinion that sexual relations are evil in themselves, but tolerated within marriage for the purpose of procreation. I think that that's a caricature. I think um, there's a biases in the East over and against Augustine. And that shines forth loud and clear in this introduction. It's one of the reasons I don't like it. Seems to be quite unconvincing, quite unfamiliar with true Augustinian tradition, of which, of course, we Lutherans are part, uh, and, and just superficially critical of it. Again, be that as it may, we don't need to meditate. But this idea that sex is, you know, like, like sex is bad. Thus saith Augustine. Uh, no, let's, let's bypass that. <laughs> let's not walk away with that impression. Okay. Continuing then with, uh, with Roth. This is not the general Orthodox. Notice the, the capital O, so that's Eastern Orthodox view. Of course, this is Eastern Orthodox publishing house, uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, introduction. We, we would expect nothing less here then. The consensus of Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox teaching is that, quote, the marriage bed is undefiled. The First Council of Nicaea, 325. This is interesting. This is interesting to all of all. And so anyways, I want to, uh, maybe I'll pause here. Um, you can tell if you're following along in the text that uh, what she's done is a great service here because she's sort of tracked through some of the primary passages in, in Scripture and some of the, um, you know, I don't know, not really foundational, but she, she fleshes out, she gives us a nice picture of how marriage was viewed in the apostolic age and reference, gives us scripture references there. So she does us a great service on this page, and I really appreciate that. That's why I've included it in our meditation. And then what comes next is, is also very, very interesting, especially in light of uh, Roman Catholicism's negative view toward marriage, uh, particularly marriage of priests, and then all the, all the disaster that's resulted there with the pedophilia and the homosexuality and all the other things that are so prevalent in our time. Of course, the East uh, joined, joined with us as Lutherans in confessing that men who hold the pastoral office can be married. Yeah. All right, so um, again with Roth, the First Council of Nicaea, that's 325, at the urging of the ascetic St. Paphnutius, upheld the ordination of married men. The Council of Gangra, around 30, excuse me, 340, condemned those who abhor conjugal relations. As Paul Andakamov says, under the grace of the sacrament, the sexual life is lived without causing the slightest decline of the inner life. Marriage, like monasticism, is a sign of God's kingdom because it begins to restore the unity of mankind and the cosmos as a whole 
which has been broken up by sin. Thus, marriage is both a great mystery in itself and represents a greater mystery, the unity of redeemed mankind in Christ. And that latter part, very well said. Okay, so that gives us, that gives us an introduction uh, to Chrysostom, to the theological milieu of his time, and to some of the things that, that he emphasizes, and to some of the things that were being emphasized uh, around and about his time here on earth. We're going to skip around now a bit in the introduction, but before we do, I'd take an opportunity to see if you have any questions or comments right off the, the top of the bat, or if anything stood out to you in that introduction that you'd like to discuss further. All right. Let us simply skip over to the bottom of page 11. <clears throat> For a long time, there was apparently no specifically Christian wedding ceremony. And that's, that in and of itself can be kind of eye-popping to us as Christians who assume that if it doesn't happen in a white dress in a church with a pastor there, how could it be a, how could it be a wedding? But the truth, of course, is, and here we Lutherans are very, very strong, uh, Luther, along with our entire tradition, uh, place, place marriage in the left-hand kingdom in the civil sphere. Right? Um, when a husband and wife agree to live, live with each other in a non-Christian place, that's still marriage. That's still marriage. Um, the, the blessings of marriage, the gift of marriage, are given uh, even outside and apart from the church. So this too takes on a, a rather spicy angle sometimes when we, when we see our pastors as, as well, part of what they have to do is do marriages. To which if I'm feeling particularly uh, confrontational, I might say, well, where in the Bible, where in the New Testament can you show me that my job as a pastor is to marry people? You won't find any. Does that mean we shouldn't? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that. It just means it's not part of the essential role and function of the pastoral office as Christ gave it and as the uh, apostles perpetuated it. Okay. So that already starts to change the shape of how we view marriage, starts to change the shape of how we view the pastoral office. And then also, by extension, changing the shape of how we view the rite of holy matrimony or the wedding day itself. So once more from Roth, for a long time, and I would argue still this is the case, just globally speaking, for a long time there was apparently no specifically Christian wedding ceremony. If a husband and wife received baptism, their marriage was thereby incorporated into the body of Christ. If Christians wished to marry, they were expected to obtain the bishop's permission. As St. Ignatius says, it is right for men and women who marry to be united with the consent of the bishop that marriage be according to the Lord and not according to lust. And in some respects, even today, this continues because if a couple in the church wants to be married, they come to the pastor and ask if he will marry them. And usually the pastor will say a kind of provisional yes, but here's the premarital requirements we have, and it varies from place to place. My general practice is about five sessions of premarital counseling, and in my opinion, the th even though I don't always share this, uh, whether or not I'll conduct that wedding uh, is dependent upon how the premarital counseling goes. For example, what if the, what if the two exhibit a complete and perfect understanding of what marriage is not? They have utterly no clue of what they're getting into. In fact, they think they're getting into all kinds of things that are contrary to biblical uh, marriage and biblical family life. At that point in time, you might say, as a pastor, you should say, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa, whoa. Uh, a similar circumstance might occur if a, if a Christian, in our case, a, a Lutheran Christian, um, wants to marry an unbeliever. They're... they're uh, the scriptures are clear that that's, that's not the role of a pastor to bless that union. Uh, what fellowship does light have with darkness, St. Paul says. Now, if throughout that process you can engage the unbeliever and you find that they're willing to become a believer and they're willing to become baptized and they're willing to be part of the Christian faith and that's just part and parcel of the life changes they're, uh, 
they're willing to make, well, then that's a different circumstance, and a pastor can make a judgment there. But again, all, all I'm saying is, is this idea that you have to get, gain the permission of the bishop back in the 4th century has its parallel even today um, in just going and talking to your pastor. All right, continuing uh, with Roth, and here she quotes St. Ignatius. As St. Ignatius says, it is right for men and women who marry to be united with the consent of the bishop that marriage be according to the Lord and not according to lust. After a marriage had been contracted in accordance with the civil law, the church ratified the union as a Christian marriage by admitting the newlyweds together to the Holy Communion. Two very interesting points here. One completely parallel with our times. There is already there, at least according to the estimation of Roth, a distinction between the civil side of marriage. Are you married in the eyes of the state versus are you married in the eyes of the church? So that would be the first thing to note here. That, that we're, not, we're not far off away from that at all here. Um, even specifically based on our locale and and under the Obama administration and very, uh, various, the Obama-Biden administration and various policies that were pushed down at that time, um, we, had, we began to change the way we do things as a congregation so as to avoid lawsuits and so as to make it very clear to, to the public and to our own members um, what, what Christian marriage is. And so one of the byproducts of that is, is the pastors of faith, uh, or in this case now a pastor, um, we don't, sign, we don't sign the civil marriage certificate. So what we, ask, what we ask those who come to us for the right of holy matrimony, that's the ecclesiastical or theological right, what we ask them to do is receive a civil marriage. You can see the distinction here. And then we will bless with the right of holy matrimony. But two separate things. Two separate things. So the state, again, the idea is that the state can't say, well, since you're signing our document, you're our agent, our minister, and you must sign them indiscriminately. Therefore, you must sign same-sex marriage licenses, etc. So we just said, hey, we're not your agents or your ministers. We're out of the marriage license game. We're out of the civil sphere game. What we do here is the right of holy matrimony. Okay. Uh, yeah, we might have to dust those policies back, back off. <laughs> All right. Well, after a marriage has been... Um, oh, so that's the first part. That's the first part. Yes, this distinction. And then the second part, um, this is a difference and something worth, worth really pondering and pondering deeply. Um, so again, as St. Ignatius says, it is right for men and women who marry to be united with the consent of the bishop that marriage be according to the Lord and not according to lust. And then here, Roth, after a marriage had been contracted in accordance with the civil law, the church ratified the union as a Christian marriage. Okay, there's the distinction. Here's the second point. By admitting the newlyweds together to Holy Communion. So much more than some great big I do, and much more than some great big moment between these two now become one flesh is Holy Communion and joining into Holy Communion as man and wife. I hope you can see the, the rather profound difference and shift that takes place there, in, in that, at least in that way of thinking. At least in that way of thinking. So the, so the height of marriage is, is of course, you know, the, the I do and the two becoming one flesh, but where is that, where is that one flesh union really, really brought to its fullness in Holy Communion? When's the last time you've been to a wedding that even has Holy Communion? And when did weddings become this thing outside and apart from the regular divine service? On Sunday morning. Those are, those are two big questions. Big questions worth considering as we go along. Roth continues, It appears from Chrysostom's sermons that in his time the actual wedding took place in the home, at a banquet, which could be the occasion of an unseemly display. <laughs> well, um, 
think about, think about marriage in the parables of Jesus, how he talks about marriage. It, the assumption is that marriage isn't happening at the synagogue or at the temple, but marriage is happening at the home. Yeah. So you can, then, you can then start to piece together that once upon a time there were marriages in the home, then they moved to the church and the church on Sunday morning, and now they've moved to Friday or Saturday night at a reception hall. Just, so just note the way we're tracking and the way this has gone and then start to draw some, some thoughts from that. All right, Chrysostom warns that there might be an unseemly display. <laughs> this is, as we'll see, this is one of the things he's, he's big on and, and something, again, that we ought, to, we ought to consider ourselves. So Roth continues, he, Chrysostom, urges that the clergy be invited to the party in place of the customary pagan singers. <laughs> I guess in place of the DJ. Um, I mean, I think most Christians, to their, to their great benefit, invite pastors and the DJ. <laughs> well, so, so Chrysostom points out, invite the pastor instead of the customary pagan singers and dancers in order that marriage begin in seriousness and holiness. Is that, how, is that how our culture thinks of marriage, seriousness and holiness? I don't know. Elsewhere, Chrysostom refers to wedding crowns. The rite of crowning seems to have been introduced by the 4th century as an elaboration of the blessing given to the newly married couple at the Eucharist. And this continues in some Eastern Orthodox parishes where they'll uh, as part of the celebration, they'll crown the husband and wife. Maybe some of you are nodding. Maybe you've seen this. Um, it seems to be kind of an Eastern tradition. I, I don't know of any tradition in the West. Roth continues, The crowning of marriages continue to take place at the Eucharist and to be culminated by the reception of Holy Communion. As long as the Roman state maintained a separate system for registering marriages according to the law. When the state gave the church responsibility for all marriages, whether the men and women involved were committed Christians or not, it became necessary to provide a wedding ceremony which could be separated from the Eucharist. Ah, so there you see some of the historical development on a, on a more global historic scale of how it is that marriage and marriage expectations, wedding expectations have come down to us. But these are, you know, again, these are things that we just often don't think about. We, we don't think about um, the nature of marriage, uh, its, its role in the church or outside of the church, etc. So very worthwhile here to uh, consider these things. Now Roth continues, so the rite of crowning began to be used alone. We might say the rite of holy matrimony began to be used alone. Those couples who were not able to receive the Holy Communion could instead share a common cup of wine. This is how the usual form of wedding in the Orthodox Church, or this is now the usual form of wedding in the, the Orthodox Church. In current practice, sometimes the crowning is once again made a part of the Eucharistic liturgy. In situations of persecution, the crowning may be dispensed with, if the couple are less likely to attract dangerous attention by simply receiving communion. Okay, so that gives us a little bit of an introduction. I thought that that was uh, well worth our time going over. Uh, what follows, what follows, tends to be less valuable, in my opinion. Much more of the, much more the opinion of... Uh, the author of the introduction and really representative of Chrysostom. Um, one important point that comes in these pages is simply that the ver versions of the homilies that we have here in this text are in some places abridged, so we want to keep that in mind. She makes a lot of arguments, really tipping her hand to feminism in regard to the emphasis on equality and trying in many, <laughs> in many respects to correct St. Paul and Chrysostom as she goes along. Sorry, I'm letting my, uh, my reading bubble out. Where 
I wanted to pick up one final spot, I thought. Maybe not. Maybe that's the end. Bear with me here for just a moment while I search my... Hmm, that's it. All right. I commend the rest of the, uh, the introduction to you. Unless you've already read it. Yes, sir. Quick comment. Um, Jesus had an interesting take on, on this, and I don't know if this is his... Uh, philosophy all the time, but the, at the woman at the well, when she was uh, accused of sin and all the people left, and uh, he made an interesting comment to her that I think he asked, how many husbands do you have? And she said, none. And he said, no, you have five husbands. And of course, she wasn't married to any of them, but obviously had been intimate with a number of them or whatever the number was and maybe at that time and in his mind that that constituted a marriage well yeah I think we want we want to be real careful there with yeah. with that text because yeah I think Jesus says you, you have had five husbands and the one you are currently married to or you have had four husbands and I can't remember yeah. exactly and the one you're currently married to is not your husband so but he was never she was never married to any of them I don't know about that. Is that right? I'd, I'd have to. I'd have to go back and look at that text. And let's. Um, well, why? Why not? We've got. We've got a minute here of time. Let's jump to John four, and and maybe. Uh, but it kind of goes along with what you were saying that uh, marriage isn't simply just constituted by uh, a ceremony. Possibly, it's it's cohabitation in a sense. Yeah. Well, and that that. Yeah, marriage, so defining marriage is a tricky thing. Yeah. And of course, uh, because of that, even the civil, the left-hand side has made its different laws in terms of like common law marriage, just saying, well, you may not call yourselves married, but if you live together and share all your assets, you're married in our eyes. And yeah, so there, there's complexity. And, and of course, it, it gets obnoxious too, I think, when um, <laughs> this was a thing in like the 19th century with, with some of our pastorals, there was like this, this very Germanic insistence upon like these three things constitute a, uh, um, what a marriage is. You know, you have to have assent and you have to have, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember it all, and consummation and all of these other things. And if anything falls apart, it's an invalid marriage. And, you know, um, they're trying to deal with problems of a different, of a different era. Uh, but yes, it gets a little squirrely, except for, like so many things in life, you know it when you see it, yeah. and someone's got to make it, someone in authority has to make a determination, and yeah, that's the case. So, um, just, to, just to look at John 4 and, and just get accurate for the sake of it, uh, what, yeah, so, so if you remember this, at, at verse 16 of John 4, Jesus says to the woman, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. I mean, this is more like the rhetoric between Jesus and this woman. She's, I, I mean, they're, they're pushing back on each other. Let's put it that way. There's some verbal sparring going on here. Go call your husband and come here, Jesus says. And it's totally a setup because he knows. So she answers, I have no husband. <laughs> it's just great. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband for you. have had five, There it is, five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then finally she says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And off they go on this, on this great theological discourse about the true nature of worship. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, Jesus, Jesus deals with, uh, with the kind of, we don't, you know, we don't know. We don't know. I, I, think that that's, I think that that's the case, that we don't know if her, her previous husbands were de- deceased, if there was divorce, you know, any of that. Liz, you're, you're trying to get a Sorry, word in here. Question. Yeah. I, so in the reading you read, is there a difference mm-hmm. between communion for a husband and wife versus the whole congregation? No, no, not, not, well, not a, not a substantive dif- difference. Uh, so the question was, Correct me if I, I'm just doing this for the internet folks. Um, is there a substantive difference between the communion of the husband and wife versus the communion of the, the rest of the car? No, would be the short answer. But what is unique 
at least in comparison to what we have, is the climax of the marital celebration is communion, which is really beautiful because communion itself points to the greater wedding, the marriage feast of the Lamb and and his bride, the church, as we see at the end of Revelation. And so what, what that act is symbolically saying, or what that theological understanding is meant to, is meant to do, is give the, give the bride and the, and the groom and the whole community this idea that our union is, is a participant in this greater union and a reflection of this greater union, right? Our coming together into one flesh reflects Christ's coming into one flesh with us and our dwelling place with God. So I think, it's, I think it's nice. It's just a symbolic, ritualistic argument. There's no verse in Scripture that says you've got to do it this way. I think you just try to say, okay, well, with this ritual enactment or with this really a theological understanding, because what are they going to do, not commune? I mean, they're communing. So, yeah, right. They might have communed together before, just not married. Right. So, so it's just the idea of, of this being, you know, again, it's, it's a little nebulous. It's open to interpretation as all ritual is. But what are, what are the ideas try, that are trying to be communicated here? And that's what I'm trying to articulate, just the idea that earthly marriage is a reflection of the greater marriage. In some respects, earthly marriage is a reflection of the sacrament, and the sacrament a reflection of the, the fulfillment of the cosmos, the new, has, new heavens and the new earth, the dwelling place of God with man, the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom. Um, perhaps even this idea of Jesus as the, as the living bishop um, being the one who formalizes the marriage after, after they both said their I do's, you know, to be anachronistic about it, um, they're before the Lord at communion and receive his blessing. So I think it's, I think it's, um, I mean, what we're talking about here is in the realm of Adiaphra, things neither commanded nor forbidden. I think it's a beautiful kind of ritualistic expression and much more rich relative to some of the other ritual expressions that have come about to replace that. So that's all. That's just simply my judgment there. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or? So do some people continue that after? Because some couples didn't really get really close during communion or something. Mm, yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's true. It's true, though. There's, there's a kind of beautiful piety that, sh- that you see in some marriages where... Uh, um, yeah, where they manifest it physically in, as they're receiving communion. They, they draw, is this what you're talking about? They draw physically close to one another and um, there's the sense of like, my Lord is your Lord and your Lord is my Lord and my destiny is your destiny and your destiny is my destiny. I've, I've observed the same thing as a pastor and I think it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing, yeah. Luther, Uh, the practice of communion being the high point of the wedding of the wedding service. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, Dr. Park's remark for those of you who are online, um, Luther Luther highlighting um, communion as as sort of the the climax and crescendo of the marriage service itself. Right. And you can see how that would work in the divine service. Um, I haven't had anyone take it up on me, but I've had some I've had some couples in the congregation be. Uh, so my sales pitch must be getting better and better because I've almost got a few of them to do this. But a Sunday morning wedding, think about it. Divine service, glorious, beautiful, culminating in communion. Yeah. Yes? So um, what are the Catholic uh, church uh, based on for the, for the priest to not to be married if mm. Jesus... He calls himself the groom, ready to be married soon. So, uh, yes. I didn't pay attention this morning while we were reading that. <laughs> yes, that's a good question. So the question essentially, if I have it right, is how do Roman Catholics make justification for an un- unmarried priesthood, especially when Jesus, our great high priest, is the bridegroom, is betrothed to the church, and is waiting the marriage anxiously as we all are? Um, yeah, I mean, the short answer, Estella, is uh, they don't have a great answer. They don't have a great answer for that. They don't have a great answer for why the apostles, not least of which in their eyes the first pope, P- 
Peter was married. They don't have a good answer for any of this. Paul explicitly says that the hatred of marriage, the hatred of women is the doctrine of demons. How can you bring that into the... This is one place where basically the whole, the entire church on earth stands against Rome and says, what are you doing? And as our Lord says, um, by their fruits you will know them. Well, what has been the fruit of that enforced celibacy on the priesthood? Debauch and destruction beyond imagination. Um, it's afflicted children of all things. I mean, it's just... Yeah, so I, I honestly don't know how you as a Roman Catholic can stand with a straight face and assert this. The, the best argument that, they, that their apologists tend to give, and best in quotations here, is um, that Christ praises celibacy. Okay, that's true. Fair enough. Uh, therefore, the church in her wisdom has chosen or has determined to choose those who have this gift of celibacy and bring them and them alone into the ministry. Where, where is the church granted that authority? Nowhere. So, first point, we're okay. Second point, we're not okay. No. Thought? Yeah. Um, so, there's a priest in Irvine uh, that was Anglican before and colloquizing to Catholic Church. Mm. Um, he is married um, uh, and has like, five or six kids. But even his members, some would not receive communion from him because he is not holy. Mm. So an Anglican uh, priest, uh, married with children, uh, colloquizes over to Roman Catholicism. There, he's accepted by them on a, an exceptional kind of basis. But then his own parishioners scandalized by this, and won't, some of them won't receive communion from yeah, his hand. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. he did say that if he wants to climb up in the bureaucracy of Catholic Church, mm-hmm. he would not be able to be a bishop. I mean, ah. he can be a he could be a parish pastor, but not a bishop. Yeah. He's precluded from that. Yeah, I mean, the, the Roman Catholicism, the strange views, and, and I don't think we'll have that too much in mind as we go along, but the strange views in regard to marriage, period, marriage in regard to clergy, marriage in regard, period, in the, in the Roman Catholic Church is really something, and it creates this, this whole wretched and terrible industry of canon lawyers who are basically, you know, the game is trying to turn divorces into annulments because annulments are acceptable and divorces aren't. And you just introduce this whole super, I mean, this whole just facade. The very thing that, I mean, the very, it's just Phariseeism. It's just creating rules and traditions and all kinds of things of men. Um, yeah, what, what heartache, what heartache could have been avoided to just have married clergy? You know, much. So, yeah, that's, that's unfortunate, the state over there in Rome. Okay, uh, that, that, takes us, that takes us through the introduction. We're running a little short on time. What I want to do next week is we will read through 1 Corinthians 7, and, boy, right out of the gate we're going to be challenged. Right out of the gate we're going to be challenged. And I'll maybe repeat these comments next week, if I can recall, but I may as well say them here too. In societies and cultures, of which the vast majority have been throughout history, and probably are still today globally, the ones who are most challenged by scriptures are those who have the power. Those who have the power. So in the vast majority of history and geography, um, those who have the power are the males. And so the males are the ones who are particularly challenged by the Christian view of marriage. So much so that when Jesus articulates it, do you remember what his disciples say? This is around Matthew 19. His disciples say, well, if that's how it is, it's better to not get married. (laughs) All right. So what we're going to find, though, what you're going to find in this class, again, brace yourselves, brace yourselves, um, is in the West... Women have the power, not the men. In America, women have the power, not the men. And I will articulate and defend that perhaps at a later time. 
but that's why the scriptures we read in this class and why the words that Chrysostom says are going to strike the women particularly as being offensive or countercultural or backward. Uh, my only example for that would be read the introduction written in the 1980s by uh, Catherine Roth. She objects to it. Uh, that's quite evident, even though she, she hides it or attempts to hide it. Uh, so, so that's going to be the challenge. The ones who have the power are going to be challenged. And in our circumstance, I've become increasingly convinced that it's the women who have the power in our society. And so it's the women who then are going to be challenged by the plain words of Scripture. So we'll get into that next week. 1 Corinthians uh, 7, we'll read the text, and then we'll, we'll get into the homily as far as we can. If you're one who likes to read ahead... Um, I don't exactly know how fast we're going to go. Just shoot for 10 or so pages, uh, give or take, and I don't know how fast we're going to go. I don't know how much we'll skip around or not. We'll just, we'll just see. If you flip with me back to the table of contents in your text, then you'll get, you'll get an idea here of where we're going to go. So the first homily will be on 1 Corinthians 7 which, as we'll see, has fallen completely out of favor in the West, uh, in, Western, in the Western church, and, and you'll see why right off the bat, because it challenges women especially. And then Ephesians 5, that'll be homily 20, followed by uh, homily 21 on Ephesians 6, and then homily 12 on Colossians 4. Four. So those will be the four primary texts we're looking at. And again, viewed from this angle, you'll see that there isn't a, a homily on the early chapters of Genesis. There isn't a homily specifically on Christ's words about marriage and divorce. So some of the foundational texts, if we were just to stop and say, what does the Bible say about marriage and we were to lay this biblical foundation, you're going to see that Chrysostom isn't doing that and we're not really doing that in this study. It's more just taking these texts and seeing what Chrysostom has to say. And of course, those other texts and themes will get interwoven. But I just want you to have a top-down view of where we are and where we're going so, so that you don't say to yourself, well, well Pastor Rody skipped in his treatment of marriage. He skipped all these most... Well, this isn't really a class on marriage. This is a reading of John Chrysostom on marriage and family life, a few of his selected homilies. All right, last but not least then, uh, the two concluding works will be um, simply a sermon on marriage and then how to choose a wife, how to choose a wife. So it'll be very interesting and especially, you know, especially as as I look around the room, as I consider myself, you know, most of us are, are married or you know, some, somewhat settled, not all of us, of course, uh, but, but the, value, the value in this study for some is going to be passing this wisdom down to open ears, whether that's children or grandchildren or whoever the case may be, whoever you can influence, passing this wisdom down, and that'll be the main import uh, of this study for you. Well and good. Well and good. We need it. All right, that's it. The Lord be with you. And also with you.